go. <laughs> Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I'm joined by my colleague, Adam Belmar. John Easton is on assignment at an undisclosed location. We are joined by special guest, Brett Palmer. Brett is the president, longtime president, nine years, of the Small Business Investor Alliance, a former colleague of mine in the Speaker's office, a fellow soccer dad with Adam Belmar, and an important client of Holland and Knight, where my wife Carrie happens to work. Welcome, Brett, to the Fury Theory Podcast. Thank you for having me. Theory one, unleash the animal spirits. The House of Representatives passed historic tax reform in the middle of the afternoon, in broad daylight, by a comfortable margin. The Senate Finance Committee passed its version of tax reform last night after enduring an onslaught of silly amendments by the Democratic opposition. Here's my theory. I think this tax bill will unleash the animal spirits in this economy because the corporate tax rate is going to be permanently set at 20%. I think multinational businesses will stop fleeing America and will come back. And I think that the trillions of dollars that are stuck overseas will come back and inject it into our economy. Brett Palmer, you are the small business expert. You are, you've got an eye on the economy every day. You know all about entrepreneurship. Is this tax bill as good as I th- say it is? It's good. Uh, it's good, and, and frankly, things are good for small business right now. When, when the economy's in the tank, small businesses you know, care about taxes, but they don't pay taxes if you're not making any money. Right. So the, the economy right now is pretty good. There's uh, a lot of good things happening, and getting taxes that are sensible and irrational make a ton of sense. And so there's a lot of optimism that's out there about the bill. Uh, frankly, a lot of folks don't know what it is yet. There's a lot of that is based on faith. Uh, and we'll, we'll get there. But, no, I think it's actually quite positive. Uh, the only downside to it is it's going to ruin Washington's reputation because they're actually helping the economy. They're doing it in broad daylight in, in ways that people can understand and see. You know, we're, we're, you know we, where's the swamp? You Where know? is the swamp? Are we really draining the swamp, Adam Belmar? What do you think about this? Well, I have noticed that uh, despite some very good reporting uh, by the media, going back to take a look at statements from Democratic leaders who by and large, bit by bit, agree with just about everything that's going on right now, have taken that hard left partisan uh, attack line, and they believe that it is not good for the economy, that it is, among other things, the Senate Majority Leader, or sorry, Minority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer has said, it's going to kill the Republican majority. That when people really figure out that this is all about big business and not uh, the, the economy of personal families, it's going to be a mess. I couldn't disagree more, but we are at a fever pitch on the political rhetoric on this topic right now. I think that's right. Uh, Brett, go ahead. Well, I, I'd say, you know, that when you're talking about tax cuts for businesses, whether they're big or small, they're tax cuts for employers. It's, it's just that simple. And I think one of the big things that you, you know, hit the nail on the head on is on the corporate side, uh, which a lot of small businesses are not corporate, they're pass-throughs. But on the corporate side, we've been driving businesses out globally uh, for decades, and it's been stupid. And this is the first major change to reverse that and uh, hold those companies here. And I, that matters to small businesses, too, that do a lot of business with the big businesses as their clients or as their suppliers. Now, we were talking a little bit about the complexity of this legislation. We don't actually, we have only a conceptual draft right now on the Senate side. They're working on actually filling in all the details. That's how they do it in the Finance Committee. The House has its real legislative language. 
But looking at the, the, the two different provisions, the House and the Senate, on the small business side, I mean, my personal opinion is that the House is the House's small business pass-through stuff is a little bit easier to understand and really sets the rate and keeps faith with a framework of 25%. What's, what's your reading of it? Well, the, I mean, small businesses are unbelievably diverse in what they do and how they do it. Um, you know, they run the gamut from the, the mom running cupcakes out of her kitchen uh, and making a little money on the side and or, you know, a, a caterer or something like that to somebody who's a, a metal bender building fenders for a, you know, a, a major car manufacturer or somebody who builds windows. I mean, it really runs the gamut. So you've got a fairly complex tax code to start with. It's getting simpler. Um, there are a whole number of provisions beyond the pass-throughs. The uh, accelerated depreciation is beneficial to some. Uh, there's a whole range of things that I think people are going to look at and be able to pick out a piece here and there and like. On the pass-through side, the Senate side is actually a little actually easier um, and a little cleaner. Um, but there, there are, are questions about how it's done either way and who is going to apply to because as the pass-through rate, because uh, people, the, let me take this back a step. So when people pay taxes, you have your corporate tax rate where you have double taxation, and that tax rate's been around 35% going to 20. That's good. Uh, organization, uh, companies that are formed as S-Corps or LPs or other pass-through entities. That Which we are here at EFB, Worldwide Headquarters. We are a pass-through. And so this is actually really important to us, Adam. Uh, uh, pay attention. Uh, pay attention. Uh, Thank God. I, let me God tell away. you, I'd like to see a little bit more passing through. Okay? That's all I can tell you right now. I'd like a little more passing through actually staying in my yeah, wallet. Right. Well, that, that's, that's the goal, and that's what's going to happen for most smaller businesses that are structured as pass-throughs. And so uh, they're, 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 they're making some changes there. It's going to – the NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Business, deserves a lot of credit for really pushing for this and really uh, making sure that they're not forgotten because small business sometimes does get forgotten because you know, the numbers are so big they get in Washington, they get caught up in the big numbers, and they forget to drill down, and they deserve a lot of credit for pushing this. And so you're going to have a better, better uh, structure for most small businesses, not all, but most. Can, can I ask a question then? A lot of the uh, supposition as we were – in the formative stages, before this thing uh, was even laid down on paper as a set of principles, Brett, the, the supposition was a cut in the corporate tax rate and some of the adjustments that you guys are talking about with regard to small business is going to have a real impact on wages. But there's not a direct connection there, but an increase in overall economic activity that gives uh, an easier opportunity for businesses to make investments and then reap the the write downs of those in that same year what is small business what are the people you work with every day think about the impact of the of the espoused economic benefit from this is, do they see it as being real i don't know there any tax cut is real benefit and any tax cut is, is reform uh, the question is is how big is it done everyone in that's really active in business really sees the world not everyone but and there's a continuum. From the right. smallest business, they've got to be able to earn money and they've got to be able to keep money, and that goes for the big guys too. And the, the driving out of the headquarters of the uh, of big businesses in the United States is profoundly bad for us and has been a dumb tax policy for a long time. And we're talking about inversions. Yeah, inversions and things like that, but it's not limited to just that. The more they're here, the more you have a caring about this country, the more you have investment in this country. There's a proximity thing, uh, aspect to this that matters. So keeping those companies here benefits employees and small businesses, and those small businesses hire more than big yeah. businesses. And let me and so it's, it's harder. It's, it's a little... It's a little bit of a stretch, but it's not a you know incorrect stretch. It's just harder to explain, but it's absolutely real. Okay. So let's assume, for example, that Commonwealth Joe. With your cup of coffee there. There's a cup of coffee. This is cold brew coffee made in America. 
God bless. And it's an American company, but it's a small business. We it assume is. it's probably a pastor, probably not a corporate entity. And but this is not Guinness, which no, is produced overseas in Ireland. If the word this word Guinness, Guinness, we'd be enjoying ourselves. I wonder. I, I in this the other part of this uh, legislation, uh, the international part, trying to get businesses back. Now Guinness is an Irish company, but it's also owned by Diageo, which is a bigger Brazilian company, I think. Um, and you know, we used to have Anheuser Busch located. In the United St. States, St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis, Missouri, but now it's also owned by some foreign entity. I think it's Brazilian as well. So we need more of those companies, not not Guinness per se, but Commonwealth Joe. You like how I cut? I want to make everyone know that we're not drinking. <laughs> I think you've thoroughly clarified <laughs> and adequately tied it into the economic that, theory. The, the, word, the word he left out there was yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to make a, one other point about this, and we shouldn't underestimate it. it. This also is a simplification of tax reform. Ninety percent of filers are now going to be able to to file their taxes on a postcard. Can I just say, the Speaker of the House has been the most effective in talking, you know, Chairman Brady as well, about this idea that individuals can file on a postcard. You know what? If they don't deliver on the postcard, I'm going to take that as a failure. Not at the level of, if you like your doctor, you can keep it, but I really do want to see my, my, uh, my postcard. You want your, but you're not going to see your postcard because one reason. You are a partner at EFB Advocacy, a worldwide business. Well, not quite. Well, yet. one <laughs> wants to see the postcard for oneself, whatever that situation may be. But no, that's important, though. I mean, there's a whole industry around tax preparation, and I understand that, and there are people doing good things. But one of the big changes that really is targeted at the, low, at the lower economic brackets and the middle economic brackets is that expanded indiv- uh, uh, deduction so that people don't have to pay someone to do their taxes right. because it is just simpler. Now, there's been a lot of – a number of industries who have expressed concerns about that because some of their benefits aren't as qu- quite as evident. But ultimately, we shouldn't be wasting people's time and making it more difficult than, for them to do what is otherwise an onerous task of paying taxes. And, you know, the, the fact is, is that – the tax code has been used for years to incentivize people to do things that they wouldn't necessarily do on their own. A lot of what this legislation does is give people freedom to do whatever the hell they want with their money. Right. And that's, which is, you know, Democrats don't like that very much. <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, that, that, that efficiency of the economy is, is beneficial, and, and I think that they deserve credit for trying to really push for that. It's still going to be complex. It's still going to be absurdly complex, but it's going to be better. Well, you know, the reason why it's going to be complex, though, is because we live in a complex world. Exactly. And we got a lot of people always thinking about ways to avoid paying taxes. I wish they, everyone would pay the, their, their fair share. And, you know, at some point in time, one of the attacks on this is going to be this is a big benefit for Donald Trump. Uh, but Trump has said that actually he's going to have to pay a lot more in this tax bill. But we don't know because <laughs> – I, I, I think it's safe to say that the president of the United States would be more than willing to pay – extra money right now if he could just buy a vowel on the board that is legislative accomplished. <laughs> Theory two, can I dance with your mandate? Included in the Senate finance bill is a repeal of the individual mandate, a key provision of Obamacare. Here's my theory. The individual mandate sounds good on paper, but for millennials who are forced to pay for health care that they don't want, they hate it. It's a tax on people who can least afford it. I think its repeal is going to turn out to be one of the most very popular points of the Senate Finance Bill. And the other thing it does, it gives us a lot of revenue to play with so you can get uh, tax cuts in other places. Brett, uh, what's your thought about this late addition to the Senate Finance Mark? 
Well, I think it goes to uh, something that a lot of people forget, which is that you get multiple bites of the apple. You know, the Republicans were not able to get uh, major changes to the Affordable Care Act earlier this year. They got close, failed by one vote. Um, but there are, that doesn't mean that you that one you know, that that that's one and done. And they've tried several times. This is an opportunity to make some changes there. Look, the truth is that the Affordable Care Act um, helped some people, but it also hurt a lot of people. And part of the story that has been missed is, particularly for lower and medium income people, they now have insurance, but they have insurance that means effectively nothing to them because their deductibles are so high. Right. If you've got a five thousand dollar deductible and you're of modest means, you effectively don't have insurance. Right. And that's that's not right. That's not fair. Um, the the challenge with the Affordable Care Act being uh, plugged into here is that this is already a, a tough lift, uh, and they only have two seats and two votes to lose in the Senate side. The Senate is going to drive most of the agenda here, not because of any structural constitutional reason, other than it has to pass there too, and they've got a very small margin. Uh, so so long as it doesn't hurt their ability to pass the bill, go for it. Well, let, let, can I ask a question? The 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 mandate of repeal thereof that is now come up in the Senate bill. Is this about needing more dollars to make this work, or is this purely politics? Uh, well, listen, I think it's about, I think it's a convenience for the Republicans because this is a campaign promise of theirs. Yeah, this is a little bit like last exit 200 miles. Like, <laughs> you want to do it, this is it, this you is know. The last, uh, this <laughs> is a, this is a, last border, right. says, yes. The last train leaving the station. Uh, but I also think uh, it's an unpopular mandate. People don't want to pay this tax. And so it's politically that that's a good but thing. Is it? And and the third thing, if you're paying the tax, you hate paying this tax, especially if you're young and healthy millennial who doesn't want to pay for health insurance. And the whole point of the tax is to get young, healthy people in the system. Now, it's probably not that great of uh, economic theory. Probably not that great for the future of Obamacare. Right. But but it, it, for a very unpopular law that Republicans have been you know hating for a long time, it's not a bad bad play. And then the third thing is. And it brings in so much money from the revenue tables. And, I, you know, and how it basically does that is by saying that there's a lot of people are no longer going to participate in Obamacare, and so we're not going to have to pay for their, their subsidies. So it's kind of, you know, it, it's, it's not an easy argument to make it the deeper you get into it, but it does save Brett, a lot so, of money. So, Brett, this, the, the repeal of the mandate, if it were come to pass, is not in and of itself – a dissolution of Obamacare, but it's almost like that poison pill that will be sure to set it to its death. I'm a recovering insurance nerd. Okay. Um, and prior prior to this, I, I ran uh, uh, the insurance regulators group. Right. Uh, so I'm, a, I'm a, I'll try not to overly geek out, but it's an important uh, part of the pro of, of the of the Affordable Care Act of how it works. The problem with the Affordable Care Act, it, well, there's numerous, but the underlying core problem is that it does not, it, it's all about whether you pay with cash or credit. When you go to the gas station, you get, a, you know, you get one price really? here, one there. The, 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 there was nothing there to actually reduce costs. There was nothing there to drive consumer-driven uh, health care. There was nothing there to use markets in favor of making improvements. Mm-hmm. This doesn't do it either, but, it's, but, it is, but it does get politically the Republicans where they're trying to go. It accelerates the problem that they already have, but it does give individuals more freedom. I generally default to a uh, – people should have more freedom, not less. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there, we, sh- we, we should, as a country, look for a more consumer-driven health care model um, to make sure that it is more affordable, that market forces are working in the public's favor, not against them. So, Adam, one of my favorite movies when I was growing up, and it's still one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, was the original Star Wars. 
And you remember in the original Star Wars when they were going after the Death Star, and he had to have that one shot that went in through the, you know, this thing, and they the guys were going in trying to, and a lot of the poor, a lot of those poor bastards got blown away. But finally, I think it was who it wasn't Han Solo, but it was Luke Skywalker. It was Luke. Come yeah. on, got off the shot. And I, I, I've always posited that getting rid of the individual mandate is like getting off that shot because it unravels the whole law. So this is the way that is, that's how you kill the Obamacare Death Star is by t- pulling away. The individual mandate. That, that's right. And, but at the same time, it's because this is just accelerating what's otherwise happening. That right. Death Star was already going to blow up. Right. It's, it's a, well, not it's, in the movie. But not, <laughs> not in the movie. Not in the movie. Uh, it was going to blow up other things. But, but, it, but the Affordable Care Act was already hemorrhaging for a whole number of reasons. But I think the onus is now, assuming that this happens, is really saying, okay, what do we need to do to drive real access to health care? Because insurance is part of it. It is not the core part of it. Right. And how do we make it affordable? Because the, the, before the Affordable Care Act, the status quo was killing people. Right. The Affordable Care Act, it's still killing people, and just people are going broke with it. Right. So neither of those are, are, are good enough options. We need to do better. Well, and I think that ultimately, Adam, um, what is going to happen as part of this legislation, there's going to be a sidecar agreement mm. that, uh, that Susan Collins and Lamar Alexander are going to have to work with Democrats to stabilize the health insurance markets. I think that's going to be part of the deal. The question is, Will that pass the House, or will the House want to have all these these exchanges kind of go down the tank? And I don't know if they can – I mean, I think that's going to be a big question about whether they can get this thing passed. Well, for people who are watching us on Facebook, uh, Fury Theory, brought to you by EFB, I want to ask you, does all that – you say sidecar, but does that mean that it is a companion agreement that goes through a different process or that they – they all have to sort of come to fruition together. Well, to I think what's going to happen is it'll be a, a separate train okay. leaving the station, but an agreement that they have to move legislation to do something. The question is, I don't think the Democrats are necessarily going to play on that. They're, 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 the Democrats are not going to play along with any type of, you know, uh, making the removal of the Affordable Care Act work. The problem with it is that stabilizing it uh, gets even much gets dramatically more difficult, if not impossible, if you remove the individual mandate. Right. And look, the the underlying health markets were healthy for big businesses for a long time. For smaller businesses, they were reasonable until you got to a certain size level of being small, and then you went to this small group or individual market. Now is the part of the market that was failing, where people were paying astronomical prices and, right. they were, and they were dislocated. So that's the part that they're struggling with and have always been struggling with. And that's where we're going to have to make sure that there is something available, but, uh, but we being the market, not we being the taxpayer. So, uh, Brad, what are your thoughts on this idea from the president of doing associated health plans? And he did through executive order, which I didn't think he could do through executive order. Yeah. I thought I, it was kind of a curious thing. Uh, well, I mean, allowing pooling of, uh, of like groups makes a lot of sense, because, right. uh, and I think there, there should be. Uh, the selling insur- health insurance across state lines really doesn't do anything. I mean, right. it really it just it's it's a nice idea, but doesn't work in, in practice. Uh, Although it's been a key Republican talking point since your boss indeed was, my, was Newt Gingrich, not Denny Hansen. We've been talking about this for, forever, forever, and we've been talking basically bullshit forever. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> candidly, yes. I mean, okay. once I sort of really did the deep dive on, on that, and, and it was explained to me, it's like okay, that really doesn't work uh, because you. That's have, a bitter pill for me to swallow. It, I've been it, talking about this forever. It, it is, but uh, <laughs> but we but the truth is is that uh, you do need to allow large groups to form, and I think that's one way of using a market based mechanism. 
to get people to, to come together, whether it's through their chamber of commerce, through, whether it's through NFIB, whether it's through whatever trade group they're with, to, to really have a, a collective to get some group purchasing, but you have to have some similarities with it. And I, th- I think that that's something that we can facilitate. Now, how it's done through executive order, frankly, I didn't understand, yeah. uh, and I haven't had a chance to really do the deep dive on it. But, it, but we can do more on that. But regardless of the, the individual little pieces, it, it's, we're going to have to do something as a country to deal with this because right. it, it does hold back people from starting businesses and from running businesses because ultimately – you know, over a long enough time horizon, you can't hedge debt. Right. And we, but we do want to do it as long as we want to postpone it as long as we can, and we need healthcare to do that. Theory three, I've got a terrible thirst. <laughs> Fresh from his trip back from the Indo-Pacific nations of China, South Korea, Japan, Vietnam, and the Philippines, the president gave a short address to the nation. In the middle of the speech, Mr. Trump stopped, desperate for a drink of water. He pulled a Rubio. He pulled a Rubio, indeed. The Florida Center immediately tweeted his critique of the president's form, good-naturedly, of course. My theory, the president had a pretty good trip to, tra- to Asia, but no matter how hard he tried, other events overshadowed it, including this drink shortage that he encountered. Well, listen, Adam uh, Delmar. You know, a- as you know, I uh, was the production chief at the White House. <laughs> I have handled many a foreign trip with the uh, president of the United States. And I think something that we all recognize, Brad, I know you travel a great deal for your job. You're uh, meeting with folks across the country. When you're up in the air, the first thing that happens is you get dehydrated. Mm-hmm. And when you're making an international haul on the way home, even when you're the commander in chief ensconced at the very front end of Air Force One, hydration is key. And I think that this president has gotten used to his ability to sort of walk into a situation, deliver a speech. He was very comfortable with the receptions he got, with the demonstrations of support and friendship in all of these countries. And so he walked in the door wanting to talk about immediately in the diplomatic reception room, let me tell you what we did, why it was good, but hey, baby, I'm back. And somewhere along the line, he just pulled a Rubio and forgot <laughs> that. He hadn't, he hadn't had enough water. And uh, thank God... The uh, White House advance team had his water slightly closer than, uh, well, it was, than, than the Florida Center. It was Center. Fiji water. Is that, is that water actually made in Fiji? Yes. Is it? Wow. Yeah, that's, 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 not, that's not by America yeah, yeah. made in America. Well, the funny thing about this is, you know, when, when Rubio did this, Trump just nailed it. He was vicious. Vicious, vicious. And I thought Rubio came back at him very nicely. Yeah. I thought it was really kind of a nice little thing. You've got to have a sense of humor with it. It's, uh, uh, But I, I honestly, whether people are Trump supporters, ambivalent, or uh, people that, that oppose him, he really did have a pretty good run in his trip through Asia. And he did not get a fair shake in the media of it. And that's not just Republicans complaining about the media. He really, there were a lot of things that were really taken out of context. Uh, but it, it, was a, it was a pretty big you know, swing. And it's a pretty big statement. And I think the bigger strategic thing that was missed was the uh, the American military is going to continue to be in the in the Philippines and and, and be present, uh, making sure that the, the shipping channels are open. But there really was a recognition of China as a as a superpower and an equal. Right. And I think that that you know we really uh, are, there's a, there's something big happening here that we're really not. Uh, this is an inflection point that we really haven't discussed adequately because people are so busy making fun of how he dumps fish food into the koi pond with the Japanese prime minister as opposed to, hey, what really are our global strategic issues? Yeah. Uh, and that, that's unfortunate because there's, there's a lot of big stuff happening. But I think he did far better than he's given credit. Listen, I think that um, 
first of all, he got great reception no matter where he yep, went. Yep, very true. And that showed that, you know, America is not necessarily, you know, hated by everybody like everyone says with, with Trump as president. I think that they, they, they understand that, you know, the way to get to Trump's heart is to kind of kiss his butt a little bit. <laughs> and that's fine. And that's fine. But he has a good relationship with Abe. I think he has a pretty good relationship with the South Koreans. Very good relationship, which is probably unfortunate with Duterte and the Philippines. But as you say, Brett, they need that relationship. It's not like we can kind of just alienate those guys and have the, the Philippines, you know, turn into complete chaos. Um, you know, the, 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 the people in Vietnam, that's one of our biggest trading partners. Now, the interesting thing is, is all these Asian countries outside of China are banding together in a trade pact. And America's got to play the, in, in, that, in that trade pact, don't you think, Brett? We, we blew it by pulling out of TPP. I mean, honestly, that was a strategic alliance to really build a ring around a growing part of the world where we have good relationships strategically. Uh, we have, we have, they're looking for us to make sure that they're not overwhelmed by China because they see China growing up in their backyard. They're not opposed to China, but they don't want to be a, a satellite state of China. And so our pulling out of that was, was a significant mistake. Although the Chinese must have enjoyed that. They, right? they loved it. Right. I mean, again, that's, it's, and it's not a zero-sum game world. Right. Uh, I mean, they they're both can benefit. But I think we really have to be engaging more constructively. I mean, again, a recovering international – I was a trade official in the Bush administration. Um, we need to be doing more in, in that regard. I do think that we can be more aggressive in negotiating, and I think that Trump deserves some credit in that regard of pushing on that because some of the things that some of the other company, countries were able to get in the TPP – um, were things that we and the Europeans were negotiating with the Asian countries. They were able to get you know, uh, carve-outs that we weren't able to get. And we, yeah. sh we should be able to do more. And so I, I'm hopeful that we can get back engaged in that you know, and get beyond the, the, the fascinating thing, to, uh, Adam, uh, that Trump said while he was in China is that he wasn't blaming the Chinese for our bad trade deals. He was blaming American politicians. And I think, you know, he's saying, listen, it's not your fault that you cleaned our clock on these trading negotiations. And China is still a huge and important trade partner in the United States. Um, but we are we have been getting our butts kicked by the Chinese. Well, the president uh, recognizes that good offense wins games, and he recognizes that from an economic perspective they have been on offense, they've been savvy. Um, I think one thing, as a, as a if you're a recovering trade guy, and I am a recovering journalist to this day, having covered Washington, D.C. for many years uh, – I, I noticed that in a world in a world where a president <laughs> controls the news cycle, um, that there was plenty of energy, separate and apart from the elections and the losses in Virginia, to keep this entire political enterprise going even without Donald Trump around. And so he gave himself a vacation to some extent from a lot of the the critical eye of the media. Other things moved on. The world can continue. He's back now. This was a good respite. This was a really good change of pace and cadence for him, his own personal news cycle. Yeah. And we won't be long now before we get back to some of the things that plagued him before he and left. I, and like I'm also almost certain that he's going to be planning his next trip out of the country because it's good for him. Hey, and that worked out. Can we do that again? <laughs> good for him and good for us. And as soon as he comes back, he gets into talking about Roy Moore and then calls – L. Frankenstein or whatever. I mean, we're not even we're, going. We're there. not going there. The, the, the fact is that it was a good yeah. trip for Trump, but he didn't get the maximum bang for his buck. 
No, he didn't. But it goes back to what we talked about earlier, though, this, this trip to China as far as the corporate tax rate here in the United States. Right. And that the Chinese really, first of all, they have been growing because they were artificially suppressed by communism for a really long time. Right. So now they're, they're still communists. They're still dictators. They still don't have free, our freedoms that we recognize. Um, but they're at least being economically, more economically free, and that's caused their, their rise. But the, the American companies have basically been had a gun to their head because this is the growth market. And, you know, that they want to access that, they've got to turn over their IP and other things. And that's why it's so important that we keep them here in the United States headquarters. Right, I that agree. That they keep that our culture that, yeah. here, that we keep our, our values here, that people care about this country that are making global decisions. And that's why it's so important to lower that corporate tax rate and go even farther uh, from a global strategic standpoint as well as from a human rights standpoint right. to have that here. And so people, it's, it's, it's secondary, but it's still yeah, directly I, connected. And I, I do think that the Trump kind of mantra of making America great again starts with a healthy, smart, competitive corporate tax rate. Also, but trade policies that are, you know, not we're not giving the store away all the time. And I think that, you know, we do need to have immigration policies that attract the best and the brightest in, in a way that is, strengthens the country. And I think the president needs to think, of, you know, about how do we get those immigration policies that, that, that attract the best that, and the brightest. That is a really interesting point, and I don't know if this is something – that you can or, or, or want it to speak to, but immigration is is very tangential, and we know that we have uh, you know highly educated folks who come in on visas like H one B, other things that help small business, especially in the uh, uh, biomedical space and in the technology and industrial space. Do those things go together in helping to maximize? Economic gain in business in business growth. There, there are upsides and there are downsides. I mean, okay. there, much like trade, nothing's all good, nothing's all bad. And on our trade policies, you know, we have trade is net positive, but that doesn't mean that people aren't hurt. And one of the mistakes we've made on a policy level is to talk to only about the good stuff, which is important to talk about, and we don't talk enough about now. But ignore the people that were hurt. We need to have policies that recognize that the net positives are good and then help those that were, were injured. That's true of immigration, too. There's a lot of really great immigrants who have come to this country and added a lot. But having total unfettered system isn't particularly helpful. But we do have you know, certain industries, both the high-tech uh, as well as low, very low-tech and manual labor, that have diff- different needs. But we do have to be making sure that American citizens are not being artificially disadvantaged and just making labor displaced because there's a certain element of sort of the grapes of wrath applied to the way the immigration policy has been, and, you know, and that's how people have felt. So, I, so we need to have some. The question is how, and rationalizing it I think is helpful, but it is tough for small businesses for uh, compliance uh, levels for, for, to make sure they're, they're, they want to obey the law, they want to make sure they're obeying the law, um, but they want to attract the best talent who show up and who want to work hard. And so people who are willing to, to work, people who are not on drugs, and, you know, we have this op- opioid crisis where it's, awful. It's, it's an awful thing, uh, where people are willing to show up and do the, what the, the jobs are supposed to do. And I think the other part of fixing our immigration laws is making sure that businesses are not, you know, employing people who are Ill- here illegally and exploiting those workers in a way that um, depresses wages. And I think that we do need to kind of – that's why you need to overall fix the immigration system. Uh, One last thing, guys, and we're going to move on. What we have right now is the famous lightning round to end the Fury Theory podcast. Uh, Adam Belmar, what are you buying or selling? Can you tell the audience? So uh, this week I am 
buying – last week I said I was buying ice melt because it, it got cold and <laughs> I, I really don't want to be falling on the ice. This week I am buying stock in the NFL. I have heard all of the complaints, all of the upset, the tumult, uh, dealing with the, the political fallout from the knee and the anthem. But you know what I think, people? I think that the farther we get into the fall – the more Americans are going to push away their political dissatisfaction, curl up on that couch with a loved one, watch those games, be proud Americans. And while I'm not a big fan of the current NFL commissioner and his personal stock might be tanking, the league itself, I think it's a good time to buy. We're back, baby. Are you going to buy and sell the Redskins? Or are you still? Are you? No, I didn't. I didn't want to bring the Redskins to the Please? table. I, I recognize we're not headed to the. Brett and I talk about this uh, many, many weekends, but uh, no, I didn't, didn't bring the Redskins, NFL as a whole. Well, well the Cowboys maybe have, be, have a forced sale shortly. If that yes. Is, so you can buy the Cowboys. It, yeah, like uh, the uh, bank error, we're taking your team away, Jerry Jones. Brett Palmer, what are you buying or selling today? Uh, well, Small Business Saturday's coming up, so oh, yeah. I'm buying from small businesses coming up after thanks, uh, Thanksgiving. Well played. There you go. I'm going to be buying... I'm kidding. I'm selling Al Franken. His stock is crashing. He's probably going to leave the Senate. Bye-bye, Al. A quick shout-out. Brett and I uh, have sons who are on the same soccer team, the Revolution. And we're going into a – I feel like you and I are going into a, uh, a weekend tournament. But the boys are playing well here at the end of the season. Do you have high expectations for us? Well, particularly your son. Your son, son scored the key goal last weekend. He had one finally. And, and, and Mr. Belmar, you know, he's got such a great voice uh, from the media. We actually voted when we had the team name vote. Uh, I lost the vote. But we, our vote was predicated on how it would sound from him yelling from the sidelines. Because one of the alternative names of the, t- the team was Red, White, and Boom. And, <laughs> and Red, White, and Boom! And he had such a, had such a great booming voice. We were, we were voting for that just so we could hear him from the sidelines. So, yes, you're, you're that's where you'll find That's where you find the two of us this weekend. Mr. So, Fried. as a uh, fellow soccer dad, are, are your kids going to be playing indoor soccer? Uh, this, this, this we're not uh, futsal type thing. We're 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 on to basketball. Yeah, for basketball. The, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. We're yeah. going to be on basketball as well. Yeah. I'll have to tell you what. I don't know how. Uh, so Brett, his wife is a pediatrician. She takes care of children. They have a number of kids, but uh, they're also very active in uh, the Boy Scouts. And so uh, Charles, who's got the best throw in of any kid you've ever seen, <laughs> the longest arms, very tall kid, is. So active because you guys are camping, you're out there doing stuff, and yet still making it to these games. You're doing three or four times as much as every other family on our team. Or we're trying, but my son had a pretty vicious arm break when he was a kid, and so he's got this sort of funny-looking arm. But he really does have this, freak, this, this freakish throw-in uh, because I think it's just because his arm bends in ways that it's not meant to be. So God's got a plan, you know. <laughs> God's got a plan. Thank you so much for joining the Fury Theory, Brett Palmer. Thank you. Uh, great to have you on the show. You gave us a lot of really good things to talk about, and I think we've learned a lot about small business. Small Business Saturday coming the day after Thanksgiving. It's going to be a big day for shoppers everywhere. Hopefully, don't just go buy from Amazon. Yeah, buy, buy local. From small buy business. from buy local. small businesses. And thanks again for joining the uh, Fear Theory Podcast brought to you by EFB. EFB means excellent, excellent for, for business. business. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. <laughs>